Welcome to the Compass Church Podcast with Pastor Tim Jacobs, a ministry of Compass Church, Goodyear, Arizona. Join us now as we look into God's Word to be challenged and changed. Good morning, Compass Church. How are we? Good. Thanks for responding. Second service isn't always that awake. I'm impressed. The coffee must be extra strong today. My name is Mike Cerati. I am part of the preaching team here at Compass. I'm the executive pastor of Students and Families, and I get the privilege of standing up today and talking about my favorite person on the planet, Jesus, okay? So here's the deal. If you need to know anything about me, and lots of you who do, you already kind of know this, I am an Arizona Cardinals fan. I'm 34 years old, born and raised in Phoenix, Arizona. I'm a Cardinals fan. And those of you who are fellow Cardinals fans, you understand what I mean when I say, I'm Cardinals fan no matter what. Some seasons, I'm happier about being a Cardinals fan, and some seasons I'm less happy, but I will never, ever stop being a Cardinals fan, okay? Um, my father and I have had season tickets for about 10 years, maybe 11 years now. We sit in section 436, row three, seats four and five, okay? Um, at every, every home game, and we have for many years. And it's kind of a big deal. I even have this like Cardinals garage. I have all of this stuff. And um, we're now three generations of Arizona Cardinals fans. My father, myself, and my son, who is a diehard Cardinals fan. He could tell you more about the Cardinals than you probably know. My daughter really doesn't care, a lot like my wife. But she pretends, right? She wants to be involved. So like we were at Safeway the other day and she said, Daddy, look at this cute hat. And it's got a sparkly cardinal bird on it. And she draws me pictures that say, go Cardinals, that I can put on my Cardinals wall. We are big time fans, okay? Today the game starts at 2.05. I do expect to win. It may be our last win of the season. <laughs> um, if you've been going to Compass for a while, please make sure that when we win today, you send Dave a message. So I had this moment at a Cardinals game last season, and um, it was kind of a weird moment. I'm not talking about one of those moments with fans, like 10 years ago, that day that we were playing the Dallas Cowboys, and the guy behind me was you know, dropping the F-bomb every eight seconds, and I turned around rather nicely. Could you please stop? And he said, sure, and poured his beer on my head. It was not one of those experiences that was weird. <laughs> Dallas fans good people. Anyway, <laughs> Jesus died for everyone. Um, <laughs> anyway, I don't hold any bitter feelings. Um, I had this moment. It wasn't one of those fan weird moments. It was actually one of those moments um, that was oddly spiritual at a Cardinals game. And I, it was a game last year, I don't remember which one, where we were winning, we were, we were actually winning significantly, at least for the moment, and the fans were going nuts. And there's about roughly 45 to 50,000 fans in the stadium. And I was just kind of drawn. I don't know if this is God or just my attention. I was kind of looking at him going, man, 45, 50,000 people going berserk. A bunch of fanatics going ridiculous. God, you put that in us, right? I just started to think about it. Lord, that's from you. You designed that worship that fanatic response. Then I have this thought, but we're all here worshiping the wrong God. And I was actually filled with grief watching all of these people give all of this energy towards a false little g tiny sports God. 
And I begin thinking, Mike, when's the last time you were a fanatic because of what God was doing? When's the last time you went just wild? I find myself, you know, you've seen, if you've ever been to a, a game, you're sitting there and something happens and you're going like this, the people around you are like, and you're jumping up and down, giving everyone high fives. When's the last time you did that for Jesus, Mike? Like, you know, we had 3,000 plus people here on, Friday, or on Tuesday for trunk or treat. How come I wasn't like, you know, I'm like high-fiving everybody. How come that didn't happen? I don't know. I would like to show you, though, a clip of one of my favorite moments of someone being a fanatic. And if you're a Cardinals fan, you'll appreciate this. It's become known on the internet as the Drew Stanton dance. Check it out. Number five up there. That is all, it was all over the internet last year, okay? But when's the last time, right? So when's the last time I'm like, go, 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 yeah, God, he gave his life to Jesus. <laughs> and I know what you're thinking. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, man, he's good at that. <laughs> but you're also thinking, what does this have to do with running to win? That's also a good question. I don't know if you've noticed, we've been going through 1 Corinthians for some time now, and once we got, by the way, I'm out of shape. (laughs) I feel better than last night, though. Last night took me a good 10 minutes (laughs) preaching out of breath. As we've been going through 1 Corinthians, through chapter six, we really have the Apostle Paul dealing with a church that's just kind of dysfunctional, right? They're going, they're weird. They're go- he's correcting them all over the place. And then chapter seven shows up, and in chapter seven, we have a series of questions that Paul is addressing that it seems like the church is collectively asking. And if, I don't know if you've noticed this, but the questions are really weird. Have you noticed this? Let, let's revisit these questions. Here's the first one. Is it good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman? I've asked that question very differently in my life. Is it good for a man to have sexual relations with a woman? I mean, I'm married. I would hope Paul says yes, right? It's a weird question. Why do you ask? Why would you ask that question? The next question is, should I stay married? It's not like it's just one person going, yeah, it's really not a good setup here. Should I stay? No, it's like the entire church going, should we stay in our marriages? That's weird. And then the weirdest one of all, Pastor Tim dealt with last week, should I remove the marks of circumcision? (laughs) What is going on? These are weird questions, right? We have another question that we're gonna ask this week. And this is all part of the same chapter. It was really meant to be read together. And so what's gonna happen is, when we read our question this week and Paul's answer, he's gonna give us insight to the context that we haven't known until then that I think gives us a whole new understanding of these questions. So if you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter seven. We're gonna be reading um, initially in verse 25 through 31. If you don't have your Bibles, it will be up on the screen and you can follow with me. So let's read God's word. Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. That's the same theme from last week. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you marry, 
you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. And then it gets really weird. 29, this I mean, brothers, the appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. And those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it, for this present form is passing away. What do we do with that, right? I mean, that's weird. What do we, what's, what's happening here, okay? So, there's a few things I wanna clarify so that we can understand a little bit before we move on. The first thing we need to clarify is this, the statement, I have no command from the Lord. A lot of people throughout the years have taken this and really questioned whether or not this belongs in scripture. There's no command from the Lord. Paul's, people kinda wonder, is this really inspired word? Is this something that God inspired Paul to say? And I really want to kind of squash that because here's what I think's happening. I think Paul's being asked a question and he's just being a practical human being. The questions that he's been asked are a little weird, right? And I think what Paul's saying is, well, you know, all right, um, well, I'm not sure I have a command from the Lord on this one, but I've been proven trustworthy by the grace of God, so here's what I think. I do not believe this is any less inspired word of God than when Paul says, I have a command from the Lord, or it wouldn't be in the text to begin with, but I wanna make sure that we look at this as good, just as good and just as authoritative as any other scripture, okay? I wanna squash that. Number two, betrothed. A lot of times people hear the word betrothed and they begin to think something along the lines of engagement, okay? In the original language here in the Greek, it's probably best to understand this as a single virgin unmarried person. And the word betrothed is used because it could also imply that this person may be promised in marriage. There was a lot of arranged marriages in this time. Maybe they're promised in marriage, but not in that process yet. So the persons that we're talking about, the context here really should be read and understood as single. A single unmarried virgin, okay? Finally, we've got some text about single people. Right, this is exciting. So it's single, unmarried, perhaps promised, but nothing more than that. And then thirdly, I wanna remind us that it says, once again, remain in the condition that you were called. This is important because this is really what Tim, Pastor Tim dealt with last week in the previous section. And the premise there was wherever you were, whenever you gave your life to Jesus, whatever you were, remain as you were called, remain who you are. We don't need to make a bunch of changes. Remember the question was, should I remove the marks of circumcision? Just remain. Okay, and then we see that again. So this week's question, in light of all this, really should be heard kind of like this. I hear the church kind of asking this question. Okay, Paul, I know that you just said remain as you are, but what if you're single? Should I remain single? The first not weird question. We get this question, right? We've all asked it when we're single. Should I remain this way? This is a good question, okay? This is a good question. So Paul answers the question by quickly referring to something that we really need to unpack, okay? He says, I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Now that line, remain as he is, we've heard that before, we understand it, but what's new is this phrase, the impending distress, this present distress. What is this distress? And in the original language here, in the Greek, it can be translated as either impending 
or present, depending on what it's talking about, whatever the distress is. That word can be translated as impending or present, so something coming or something current. So for a long time, scholars have kind of argued about what Paul's discussing here, and a lot of people will say the translation should be present trouble, and it's probably referring to some sort of famine, because there were numerous famines famines that went on during this period of time in this area. So there was a shortage of food of some sort, okay? A lot of people think that. We don't really have any way of knowing for sure. But I'm going to suggest that it, Paul's talking about something much deeper, and that when we understand that it's much deeper and much scarier than a famine, then all of the text seems to come alive and be much more palatable and understandable. So I think what Paul's actually referring to is a prophecy that Jesus made in Matthew chapter 24 where Jesus prophesied that Jerusalem, before this generation passes, okay, so before this generation, in Matthew 24 he says, before this generation passes, um, Israel will be captured, the abomination of desolation will happen, and the temple will be destroyed, okay? So this is really a conquering of Israel, including the destruction of the temple, and this is a catastrophic event. This is big deal. This is like America's gonna be conquered before all of us are gone. We're like, (gasps) that would be be significant to us, and it would have been significant to them, okay? Um, So really, I think that's what's happening here, and the reason I think that's happening here is there's a few pieces of history that we can line up. First, we know that 1 Corinthians was written in 53 through 55 AD, 53 to 55 AD. If you know anything about this conquering, it was because of the Emperor Nero, and the Emperor Nero came to power in 54 AD, which is during the time that 1 Corinthians was written. Then in 64 AD, Nero outlaws Christianity, which is where that persecution begins, and Jerusalem rebels against Rome in 68 AD, and then Nero conquers and destroys the temple in 70 AD, before this generation passes, okay? That's 70 years. Well, this is 53 to 55 years into that, and everyone has known that this is coming, and now what I think is happening is that they're starting to either see the times or the Apostle Paul, by the help of the Spirit, is saying, guys, the time is coming near. So it was this thing that was kind of scary and far off that now is becoming very near and present. Think about it like this. We all know that we can get cancer, correct? Cancer is an ever-present thing that we know that could happen. And we're aware of it, we have a reverent fear of it, we pray for it, we watch people go through it. That's kind of how it's been for Israel, and to that point, that knowledge. But it's very different when you're told you have cancer. How do you process that? Anger, fear, frustration, what goes on? How do you tell people? Is there some fanatic feelings that arise out of fear? Because that's another way we become fanatic. It's like, ah! right? That fear, what do I do? And you can almost hear the people asking these questions to Paul. Paul, it's coming, what do we do, what do we do? And they start asking all these weird questions. I think that's what's happening to the church. I think it's much deeper than a famine. I think they're starting to become aware that in their time, very near, persecution is gonna be significant. And with that, finally, these questions in the text come alive. We go, oh, I see now. The people were responding with fanatical questions about what they should do in light of the coming distress. 
So I think that word should be translated as impending or coming distress and is referring to this prophecy that Jesus told was coming and in fact was coming. I think the people are kind of doing the Drew Stanton dance. (laughs) Go, 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 we could die. I think they're freaking out. And I think Paul's trying to address their questions in light of freaking out. So now, verse 27, we hear Paul say, are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. The distress that's coming was really making singleness a more desirable thing than being married. Why? Why would single be easier? Well, we've already heard in chapter seven, earlier on when Tim and Gabe were preaching, we heard that the singleness provides for less distractions between you and your relationship with the Lord. And if there's an impending distress coming, your walk with God's gonna be very important. But number two, and what we learned today, is that if you're about to have to run for your life, it's gonna be much simpler, much easier, less troublesome to be single. If Rome is coming and you're running from the hills, which is what Jesus describes in Matthew 24, he says you're gonna run to the hills, it's much easier to run alone. If you have a wife and kids and family and all this stuff to come, you gotta worry about them and you're much slower. It's easier. This is practical. I think this is Paul's point here. If you're single, stay that way. It'll be easier. I'd spare you of having to worry about a family. It'll make it easier for you to focus on your relationship with Jesus, one of which you're gonna need desperately in the coming years, perhaps even weeks. Paul then continues, this is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. This, is, this little statement right here is very much of a here's my point kind of line. I've said a few things, but here's what I'm saying. It's a significant point. Paul's using it to clarify. I'm saying this because, and he says this, what, what does it mean? The appointed time has grown very short. I think the most obvious interpretation of that would be referring to that impending distress. The time has grown short. That seems pretty clear, it's easy to see. Well, yeah, of course that's what he's saying. Interestingly enough though, a lot of scholars really kind of argue that this line is bringing in a whole nother topic. One that Paul addresses um, often in the New Testament. Not just Paul, but Peter. They suggest that Paul is actually talking about here the imminent return of Christ. So it's not just the impending distress, but also the imminent return of Christ. In this section here, they're in the last days. Biblically speaking, the last days began when Jesus rose from the dead. So the expectation of the imminent return of Christ was still very present. Now Paul and Peter never taught that Jesus would return in their lifetime, but they taught all over the place and expected the church to understand that Jesus' return was imminent and could happen at any moment. Either way, what I think Paul's saying here, my whole point is, the reason I'm saying this is this. Many of you are about to meet Jesus in death or by his return. 
I'm saying that you should remain single because many of you are about to meet Jesus either in death or in his return. And all of a sudden we go, oh, I get it now. This is why Paul says, he continues, from now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. And those who mourn as though they were not mourning. And those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing. And those who buy as though they had no goods. And those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings. We're supposed to live as though we had none because we shouldn't consider anything as our own as if it's our permanent possession because this world is about to pass. Either Jesus is coming or we're all running for our lives because Rome is coming and the temple's about to be destroyed. Things are not going to be the same, whether by death or Christ's return, nothing is yours. All is passing away. And all of a sudden we're going, oh, so Paul's not against marriage. He's just saying you should probably begin to prepare yourself with the idea that you could lose someone you love. And that all of your possessions will be taken. And that your mourning, whatever you're mourning for right now, is gonna be nothing compared to what you'll mourn for later. So we continue, verse 32. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord and how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. The unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint on you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. Paul is not saying marriage is bad. He's not saying that anyone's done anything wrong by getting married. He's been asked the question, If I'm single, should I remain that way? And he's saying, I don't have a command from the Lord, but as someone who's proven to be trustworthy by the mercy of God, I have a judgment, and here's my judgment. If you're single, stay that way, it's gonna be easier. This isn't a rule, I'm not saying this is something we follow, it's not a rule of thumb, it's not something you have to, you know, go like this, and this is what Paul, this is what's happening right now, and it's just, it's practical, it's the way it is. This is my advice. It's not a rule, not a rule of thumb, not an indictment on marriage. It's practical advice for what's coming, and in my view, it's really good advice. And the purpose of it is so that you would accomplish that he would secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. And that continues, that that line right there really ends up being the main kicker here for Paul. Why do I want this for you? Why am I saying this? Why should you be single? Why should you be free? Because really, you're gonna need your walk with God. You're gonna need a relationship with Jesus to be significant, and I need you to be undivided, and if you're single, that's much easier. We've already seen him talk about that earlier on in chapter seven. So here's the big idea. I think in this text. Paul wants the church to serve the Lord with all our heart and with as few distractions as possible. 
That's really what he wants. That's what he wants from the church. That's what he wants from all the people. Married, unmarried, betrothed, engaged, divorced, everyone. That's what Paul wants. The undivided devotion because they're gonna need it. And if you're single, stay that way because it'll just be easier to accomplish that. Now how does this, how can we apply this to us? How does this work for us? Join with me for a moment in imagining something. I want you to imagine right now that seven days from today, you will meet Jesus either by death or his return. Next Sunday, seven days from today, you are going to meet Jesus either by death or by his return. Now please hear me, this is hypothetical. I don't know if I'm gonna stay at this church anymore, this guy's weird. This is hypothetical, not saying Jesus is returning in seven days. If you're going to a church that says that, you might wanna reconsider your thoughts. Hypothetically speaking, you're gonna meet him seven days from today. Death or return. How would you react? What would you change? You've probably heard this by now. We do this thing called R&D every week. It's a research and development meeting that we have on Wednesdays for the preaching team. So it's my week to preach. And uh, so we're meeting with a bunch of people. And I opened up the discussion with this question. I didn't tell anyone what the text was about, where we were going, anything like that. I said, here's the question. And I got some fascinating responses. In fact, the first person I spoke to is my wife. I said, hey, Ginger, um, if this was happening to us seven days from today, we, Jesus is returning, what, what would change, what would be different? And she looked at me instantly, she goes, I wouldn't see you. And in my mind, I'm like, I'm the positive, like, yeah, we have a good marriage, guys. So I heard that th- the way that I ho- wanted to, right? Like, I know what she means. Then a few minutes later, I was like, I'm not sure I like that. <laughs> so I sent her this text. I waited till she got to work because I knew she'd reply. Um, I sent her this text. I'm like, could you clarify what you meant for me so I don't feel like I'm a bad husband? This is what she said. You know that Lexi and Isaac and I will be in heaven. We are assured eternity with Jesus. So you would be out telling others. That's what I thought she said in the first place. And I was like, Phew. In the R&D, we were talking and um, our children's ministry director, Colin, said something I thought was really interesting. He said, my worries and concerns would be different. I wouldn't be worried about my car breaking or trivial things. Someone else, I don't remember, so I just said someone else. I wouldn't waste all my time on TV. I'd spend all my time in relationships. Do you hear everyone answering that question? And what they're doing is they're cutting through distraction focusing intently on what's important and no longer on the things that make us busy. They all spoke about getting rid of distraction. And I believe that's exactly Paul's practical advice here for us. If we today, the modern church, were to live like every moment, every day could be our last day, it would change everything. And think about it, when, 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 we, when, when someone asks us how you're doing in your walk with God and you're not going well, what's your number one response? I've been busy. Well, the truth is, what's happening is you're taking all these little things and you're putting them way up here and your time with God down here. And the question becomes, are these important? And if Jesus is returning in seven days, we take them and we go, Ugh. 
and all of a sudden they're not. We might take a long, hard look at what needless things are distracting us from God. Again, that's the big idea from Paul here. Paul wants the church to serve the Lord with all our heart and with as few distractions as possible. And I have a question for you. How is Paul's application any different for us today? Do you know when Christ is gonna return? Do you know, as a matter of fact, when you're gonna die? Why is it that here in America we get so good at acting like we always have a tomorrow? The persecuted church, they don't get that luxury. And they may be freaking out a bit, but they're cutting through the distractions. This is why they ask the question, should I stay married? You can begin to see, like, what am I supposed to do? If you were to live like you were gonna meet Jesus in seven days, what would your life look like? What would you keep, add, or subtract? I want you to think about that. If you were to live like Jesus was gonna return any moment or you were gonna pass away at any moment, what would you keep, add, or subtract out of your life? And what I'd like you to do is I'd like you to consider that this week. And I have a follow-up question. What would, you like, what would you keep, add, or subtract? And here's my follow-up question. Why don't you? Why don't we? None of us are promised tomorrow. Not one. This is what Paul and Peter all over the New Testament are saying. Live like his return is imminent. Live like he's coming. Live with as few distractions as possible. But for us in America, it's like the scene in the Disney movie, Up, the dog, the dog Doug. You know that dog. We're like, hi Jesus, it's nice to see you. Squirrel! <laughs> and then at the end of the day, we're like, well I meant to have time with Jesus, but I saw something shiny. all these distractions into what value do they have? We have no idea when he's coming. Second Peter three, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and all the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Waiting for and hastening the coming day of God because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promises, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found without spot or blemish and at peace. That sin issue we can't get rid of. How small it would seem if we assumed that Jesus was coming at any moment. 
we live like we have tomorrow. And it makes us selfish. Easily distracted. And it makes us people with very weak relationships and faith in God. So here's my challenge. If Paul wants the church to serve the Lord with all of our heart and with as few distractions as possible, I should learn to live each day as if it might mark Jesus' return or the end of my life. You look at the churches in China and Africa, they are exploding. By the way, the epicenter of Christianity is no longer in America. It's East. China and Africa own that title now. Why? They don't get the luxury of living lives like they don't need God. They live in fear of death every day. And so they rely on him and cut through the distractions. Number two, I should examine my life for unnecessary distractions that exist between me and my walk with God. What are the greatest distractions between you and an undivided devotion to the Lord right now? If you're married in this room, I wanna say a couple things to you. We've already talked about this a couple weeks ago. Um, If you're married, you were not called to be single. That's been dealt with in chapter seven here. You were not called to be single. You're better married, okay? It's already been said, so in case that feels a little different today, Paul already said that. It's better for you to be married if you're married. If you're called to be married, you need to get married. It keeps you from temptation. There's nothing wrong with it. It's good and holy. In fact, you can serve the Lord better together. I think we get that wrong sometimes. I'd like you to do something. I'd like you to spend some time this week holding this question in tension with the two of you. This question of what, should, what distractions do we have in our marriage and in our life And what could we get rid of? I'd like you to do this together if you're married. What are the greatest distractions between you and undivided devotion of the Lord? Identify them and seek to get rid of some of them. You'll grow together. And might I suggest something even deeper? You might begin to model a life of getting rid of distractions between you and God, all those distractions, to your children who may subsequently be learning how to live a very distracted life from mom and dad. Would you do me a favor? Would you spend this week, set some time aside, 15 minutes at least, the two of you, and deal with this question? Please, you'll grow together. If you're single, finally you had a message about you. I get to talk about single people. It's all for you, okay? First thing you need to hear is live as you're called, okay? And let me just say this. If you're single right now, today you are called to be single. Argue with me. This moment right now, you've been called to be single. So let's do this. Let's look at what Paul's saying. One of his points is that singleness provides an opportunity for undivided devotion to the Lord. Unmarried people can give themselves to the Lord's affairs in a way that married people can't. It's just you. You get to be more free. So until you're married or until you realize that God has actually called you to be single, just spend time focusing on you and God. Enjoy your chance for undivided devotion to the Lord. Date Jesus. You'll be a better person if you're called to marry, marriage in, in the end. 
You're gonna be more like Christ. You're gonna be more godly. Focus on your walk with God and kick and butt in the name of Jesus. Take some names and if God calls you to marriage, you're gonna be a better person, amen? To the unbeliever, if you're in this room today and you don't have a walk with God yet, you're still wondering and searching, I have a challenge for you. This life is full of impending and present distresses. You cannot avoid it. I've never met someone who's avoided pain and sorrow and tragedy. Are you gonna wait until more and more of that befalls you before you wrestle with God? It's funny to me, actually. Tragedy and suffering makes a believer out of everyone. Even the atheists who say that God doesn't exist love to curse him when life gets hard. C.S. Lewis says this, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. No one can avoid pain, sorrow, or any other distress. You cannot avoid it. Please take it from me. I've walked with God through some tragic moments in my life. He was wonderful and good and kind, and I never felt alone. Maybe you're here today, not because someone invited you or because by chance you came here. Maybe you're here today because God is actually at work in your life, and it's time for you to give your heart to him. Let's pray. Lord God, it's so easy to be distracted. We have put so much in priority over you. Convict us, God. I pray that we'd take this practical advice. That's what Paul was doing. He's giving practical advice. Here's my practical advice, Lord. I pray that we'd take the time to recognize in our lives the distractions that are unnecessary and work to get rid of them. I pray we'd do that this week. We'd set time aside. I pray we'd take this seriously so that we can accomplish a more undivided devotion to you because we need you, God. And for the unbelievers in this room, Lord, would you make your presence known to them right now? Would they recognize you in the heartbeat that seems to be going faster in this moment because you're calling them? Would you bring them to the place where they look up and they say, God, I need you. My life is hard. I am not good at doing this alone. I need you to forgive me for my mistakes. I need you to make me new. And I need you to walk with me. Because I'm in pain. I need you, God. Come into my life and make me new. And Lord, I pray that that prayer would be our attitude, every single one of us, every single day. And I pray that we get rid of distractions that help us to forget that. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us today. Why not ask God to change your life so you can go and change your world for Him? To find out more about our church online, go to www.compasschurch.info. 
and we'll see you next time. 